Welcome to New Day Vine. <laughs> Start over. Is it too early to restart? It's, I'm good, right? All right. Hey, for the recording's sake. <laughs> Welcome to New Day Vine. I'm Pastor Anthony. Like Shamrock said, I literally just started over exactly the same way. Hey, guess what? We're in a series. Yay. The series is The Upward Journey. We are learning about God. A whole year on spiritual maturity is an awful lot. So we broke it up into three sections. Maturing inwardly regarding our identity. We're maturing as we view God and maturing as we relate to the world. So the inward, upward, and outward journeys. We're about smack dab in the middle of the upward journey. So let's talk about what that is. We have a catchphrase, and here it is. The upward journey is all about beholding and becoming. Here's our verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians, as I say every week, it's always a good reminder, and he tells them this is what we should be about. We should be spending so much time with God, getting to know God so well that his character and his attributes actually begin to rub off on us. We want to reflect the God we spend so much time with to the world that desperately needs to see him. So as we learn about God, let's not forget, part of learning about him is becoming like him. And everybody said amen. Amen. All right, moving on. We just finished up God in the Psalms where we looked at how we can see God in different Psalms. It was actually kind of neat. I enjoyed doing that. And now we started a new series called Things God Hates. Catchy title, that's right. But did you know that God does, in fact, hate some stuff? And did you know that you actually are supposed to hate some stuff, too? So we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to start with pride. God hates pride. It's all over the Bible. This is one thing that gets under God's skin so much. He talks about it in both Testaments over and over and over again. And we are replete with stories that illustrate just how much God doesn't like it. So we get this list from Proverbs 6, so we're going to read the whole little section that we get our our sermon series from. Here it is. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. God hates all of these things. But for the sake of today's sermon, we are focusing in right here. The Lord hates haughty eyes. What am I talking about when I talk about haughty eyes? It's very simple. This is just a euphemism for arrogance. That's all. Good old-fashioned pride. In fact, haughty means to be lifted up Loftily, So the verse is actually creating a poetic image that we still use today when someone's eyes are lifted up. And I, I have a few images that I think perfectly illustrate what this might look like. And it'll probably offend everyone in this room. Here it is. Now, for the record, I looked for a Bernie. I could not find a haughty Bernie Sanders. They all looked chaotic or confused. <laughs> so just know I thought of them. I didn't leave Bernie out intentionally, but yeah, dude, I, Obama and Trump are just rocking the haughty guys. Now, now, for the middle picture, that might just be, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I think that was at the hearing. But anyway, we're going to, all right, focus here, bring it back. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. 
let me say this about this message. I want this message to be both a clarifying message and a message that gives you permission. I hope that everybody leaves here today saying, oh, okay, and has a moment of realization. That said, I will probably say something in this message that will bother someone. As I was making the message, I thought to myself, I can't say that. Is that really right? That can't be right. This was one of those messages that I kept praying, and as I was praying, and you know, I got the different parts of the message because it's really how I prepare. I've discovered it's the best way, and when I don't do that, it's a flop. So I'm praying, and I'm like, that can't be right. Oh, that's right. Wow. Well, I'm putting that in there. We're just going to roll with it. So if something bothers you, good. Hopefully it's resolved at the end. Some of it didn't sit well with me until I really prayed through it, but hopefully by the end we come to the same conclusion. Sound good? Let's roll with it. Here we go. Haughty eyes. This is reaffirmed in Proverbs 21.4. Listen to this verse. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Sin. So wicked people act like this is their guiding principle, right? This is their lamp. This is what they make their money on. This is the thing they hang their hat on is their pride. Has anybody heard of a, a clothing brand called American Fighter? I think it's American Fighter clothing. If you watch the UFC, a lot of the guys have American Fighter gear on. And their logo is American Arrogance or American Arrogant. I think that's what it says. So this is everywhere. People who are arrogant, some of them are actually quite proud of it. But God says that that is sin. That's wrong. And then in three places in the Bible, at least, God flat out says, I oppose the proud. I stand in their way. I don't like it. I will actively frustrate you, but I give grace to the humble. God really hates pride. Really, really hates it. Moving on. Pride and everything else that God hates is the complete opposite of God's character. If you go back and you listen to the message on holiness, which you can because it's online, one of the things I talk about is that God is 100% good. He's 100% morally and ethically pure, and he has no possibility for evil. He's good all the time in his actions, in his thoughts, in his intentions. So if ultimate good hates something... That's because it's contrary to good. So if God hates something, it's really bad. And it's in your best interest to hate it too. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it was C.S. Lewis once that said, if we only acted in our own best interest, we would do exactly what God told us to do. <laughs> and it doesn't seem right, but maybe that's because we have a pride problem. Could be. Let me give you the main takeaways from today's message before I begin. I like to do this at the beginning because then everybody, I know you've heard it clearly and directly, and I haven't fumbled over my words. Point number one, pride is not, not recognizing your abilities, acknowledging your achievements, or having confidence. We're going to unpack all of those, but pride is not that. Number two, pride is a skewed view of yourself and others. And point three, others are in fact our solution for and insurance against pride. So we're going to walk all those out. We're going to move right along. Let's talk about these pride aren'ts or pride isn'ts. I'm not sure what the correct grammar is in that case, but let's do it. Number one, pride is not recognizing your abilities. Or as I will probably say for the duration of this message, your unique awesome. Because you are made in the image of an awesome God and you have some awesome on loan from him that's been given to you. Pride is not recognizing your own awesome. Here's a great quote that illustrates that. It's Bruce Lee. And somebody asked him if he was really that good. And this was his response. If I tell you I'm good, probably you will say I'm boasting. 
But if I tell you I'm not good, you'll know I'm lying. I like Bruce. You know? It's like, of course I'm good. Do you, do you see me fighting? Good grief, man. You're going to ask me that question? But he understood there was no, there was no way to seem like a non-arrogant person saying yes. So this was his response. But I would say to Bruce, Bruce, I get it. Recognizing that you might be the best martial artist of all time is not arrogance. Not in and of itself. How do I know that? Because God acknowledges his own awesomeness all the time. Last week, Mark Morris preached on Psalm 145. In that psalm alone, the psalmist says that God is, and I'm going to read them, God is great, glorious, worthy of praise, majestic, good, good to all, righteous, gracious, compassionate, (sighs) breaths to prevent passing out, slow to anger, loving, mighty, the king, trustworthy, faithful, helps the weak and needy, he's a provider, he's always attentive, he's ever watchful, he's sure to destroy the wicked. That's a lot. And you know, the Psalms, remember they're quirky because that's somebody writing to God, but it's also God's word to us. So we'd be justified in saying, I am. God's saying, I am. Great, glorious, worthy of praise, majestic, good, good to all, righteous, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, loving, mighty, the king, trustworthy, faithful, a helper of the weak and needy, the provider, always attentive, ever watchful, sure to destroy the wicked. Yeah, come on now. Getting better. So when we put the I am in front of that, it sounds like, what does that sound like? Sounds like bragging, almost, doesn't it? And yet, can that be pride? Could God be arrogant? The same God that came in human form and said, come to me because I'm gentle and, what's that word? Humble. Humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It can't be pride. Acknowledging your own abilities, your own unique awesomeness, cannot be pride because God does it all the time. And yet he's very humble. I would say the most humble creature in all of creaturedom. And he's not really a creature, that's not fair. Sorry about that, Lord. The most humble person... All right, I'm getting into theological territory. Rewinding again, I'll edit that out. Not really. But acknowledging your abilities, not pride. Moving on, here we go. Pride is not acknowledging your achievements. So you acknowledge these abilities, right? But some of us use our abilities and actually do really cool stuff. You take that unique awesome and you do awesome things. It's not arrogant to acknowledge that. How do we know? Because God acknowledges his own awesome accomplishments all the time. Go to the end of the book of Job. Job and his buddies argue back and forth about why Job is in such a bad spot for well over 30 chapters. And God's solution at the end is to show up and brag. Again, for several chapters in a row, he questions Job, like, when did you make the earth? Oops, I did that. Hey, have you seen the storehouses of snow and hail? No, you haven't, but I have. Hey, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Are you there when that happens? Oh, I am. Oh, did you make this giant leviathan, crazy fire-breathing dinosaur dragon thing? Oh, I did. Can you take it down? Because I can. Everything's afraid of it in all the world, but not me, because I made it, and I'm awesome. Who are you again? Wow, God is bragging on purpose about his accomplishments for four straight chapters. And you know what? He's not alone. Some holy men of the past have done the same thing. Look at St. Paul. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians, he was kind of pushed into a corner, I'll admit that. But he needed to establish some bona fides. 
He needed to reestablish who he was in his ministry. And if you read 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is boasting. He admits that he wishes he didn't have to do it, but he doesn't. And in doing so, he's not sinning. I love the opening. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder. And then he launches into it. That's bragging about his accomplishments. At the end of his life, when he's about to hang it up one way or another and he knows it, he tells Timothy this, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4.7. I did some awesome stuff. Acknowledging your unique awesomeness, your giftings and abilities, not pride. Acknowledging the accomplishments that you've done with that unique awesomeness, not pride. God does both, not pride in and of themselves. Is everybody following that? All right. Here's the third one. Pride is not having confidence. I think we struggle with this in the church because when we think of the mature Christian, a lot of us growing up in church, I certainly never wanted to be a mature Christian when I was young because I didn't look ahead and age and see people that were enjoying life much. And it seemed to me that to be mature, you just had to be kind of weak and moby. I don't know, maybe I'm unique in that. But maturity didn't look good. But good news. This confidence thing is not bad. God certainly models confidence, does he not? Let's look at the beginning of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together, so the entire world is ganging up, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. What's God's response in verse 4? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why? Because he's confident. He sees the whole world of kings and armies ganging up, and he thinks it's cute. Why? Because he's confident in who he is. He's the Almighty. He's very familiar with his own awesomeness. He knows just fine what he's done in the past, and he knows that he can handle anything that might come in the future. He's confident. And you know what? God wants that confidence for his people. Confidence is not a bad word. Look at these in wildly different contexts. Wildly different contexts. You're supposed to be confident. Here we go. Joshua 1.9. Joshua is about to go into battle. That's the setting. He is going into real physical conflict where he might die. And God says, be confident. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God keeps repeating that to him. And at the end of this chapter, the people say, Joshua, we will follow you. But one thing, be confident. Be strong and courageous. And then we'll follow you. So he's hearing it from God and he's hearing it from the people as they're about to go into war. Well, let's go into the New Testament in a a crazy, crazy different setting. Paul's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. And they're facing persecution. Kind of the opposite of going into battle to conquer. They're looking at maybe losing their lives and suffering some real hardship. And what does Paul tell Timothy? Timothy, be confident. He says this, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Be powerful, Timothy. Be confident. Shoulders back, man. Whether you're going into battle or whether you're going to court, be confident. And then even at the end of time, in 1 John 2.28, when Jesus himself comes back, the sky splits. And the Bible says that some people are going to be trying to hide under rocks, asking the mountains to fall on them. They're going to be so scared 
because God Almighty shows up. This is God's heart for his people on that day. 1 John 2.28, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident. That wasn't a very confident, confident. One more time. Awesome. And unashamed before him at his coming. Look, if you're going into battle, if you're going into court, if your life is on the line, or if things are going great, or if Jesus himself is coming back, God's plan for his children is confidence. You can walk with your shoulders back without your nose up. And that is what God wants for his people. It is not pride to acknowledge your own unique awesomeness, your gifts and abilities. It is not pride to accept a compliment when somebody says, hey, you did this and this, didn't you? Man, that was awesome. Acknowledge it. That's not pride. And it's not pride to be confident as you move through life. That's what God wants from you. Now the hard stuff. But pride is a skewed view of yourself and others. Now, there are many sermons here, and I know that, so I'm kind of briefly skipping over the surface, so if I miss something that you want me to say, we're not having a two-hour service, and you should be grateful. But if you want to order Martini's pizza and bring it back, maybe we can, but I'm just going to go over a few things here. Pride is having a skewed view of yourself or others. Let's check this verse out from Romans. Paul says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, and that's every one of us in this room, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Let me pause right there. Interesting. He does not say, don't hear this said, do not think of yourself highly. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Not more so. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. It's a reach. This is me kind of interpreting a little bit and having fun. I didn't get this from the commentary. But I'm going to submit that Paul may have used that word sober on purpose. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself soberly. I think what he was trying to say in a, in a roundabout way was, don't be drunk on your own ego. Don't be intoxicated by your own importance. Don't let yourself intoxicate yourself. Be sober in how you think of yourself. Does that make sense? Here's a story of what it looks like when your ego gets drunk and needs to go home. King Herod in Acts 12 has been having a problem with some underlings in the Roman Empire. And they've been causing some problems for King Herod, who wasn't much of a king in history anyway. He's more of like a lackey for the emperor. But he thought he was a king, every bit of it. So he schedules a meeting to sort this out. And this is what happens in Acts 12, 21 to 23. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. How important. They shouted, this is the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. That, I don't know if I want to see the video of that in heaven or not. I think I'm going to pass. But here's the point. Herod is already a pompous windbag who thinks way more highly of himself than he should. He is a lackey. He's not a king. He's an appointee, right? He's just a figurehead. And somebody says, oh, your speaking is like the voice of a God and not a man. And somewhere in Herod's twisted heart, he said, yeah, that's right. No, that's not right, Herod. 
Your ego is drunk. Go home. You are not thinking of yourself soberly. And that kind of pride is so repulsive to God that he immediately takes action. Immediately. My favorite story of pride taking control, of, it, of that self-estimation getting twisted to such an extent that God has to take action, is out of Daniel chapter 4. A little background on this, story time. God judges Israel in the Old Testament a long time ago by allowing them to be conquered. The king that finally takes Jerusalem is a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. And he'd taken all the other kingdoms too. He honestly does become the awesomest king in the world at that time. Now, is that pride, based on what we just said? No. If he was to walk around his royal palace and say to himself, I've conquered all the kings that I've ever battled against, is that pride? No. If he was to walk around confidently, would that be pride? No. But he walks into pride hardcore, and here's how it happens. He has a dream. And in this dream, he sees this giant tree. And the tree goes up to the heavens, and its branches spread out, and it's got this glorious, beautiful fruit. And he sees in his dream all the, all the birds and all the animals are nesting in the tree and sleeping under the tree and eating the tree's fruit. And the tree is just providing security and abundance and a provision for the whole world. And then he sees a messenger, an angel, come down from heaven and say, chop it down, scatter the fruit, scatter the branches, wrap an iron band around the stump, and let it be exposed to the elements for seven years. And let its mind become the mind of a beast. So the king is rightfully a little distraught by that. So he calls his wise men in. They, of course, are a bunch of schmucks who don't know anything. So he calls in Daniel, who has proven himself in the past and has a relationship with the one true God, Yahweh. And he says, Daniel, my man, you got to help me. I had another awful dream. Daniel interprets the dream and says, oh, king, I'd rather this dream apply to your enemies and not you because it's really bad. But here's what it means. You are going to have your sanity taken from you. You're going to be like an animal for a period of time. And my suggestion to you, King, is that you start practicing righteousness and taking care of the needy, a.k.a. acting humbly, so that your days of prosperity can be extended. Nebuchadnezzar himself is writing this chunk of the Bible. It's a memoir. Read Daniel chapter 4, and he says, All of these things came upon me. It says, 12 months later, well, I think I have the verse here. This is so amazing. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about himself in the third person, which is, seems right if you're a king. <laughs> 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, this is crazy. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Pause there. Don't skip by that. I am a nerd, and I have a book that has a whole bunch of quotes from really ancient kings and stuff. None of them would talk this way. All of them would say, my really funny-sounding named God gave me this authority, and I've conquered these people by the power of my funny-sounding God, and I've done it for my funny-sounding God's glory. That's just the way they talked. That's the way they wrote their royal transcripts. That's the way they sent their notes. I mean... Everything had to do with funny-sounding God for funny-sounding God's glory by funny-sounding God's power. All of it. Nobody is going to say, I did this for myself, by myself, for my glory. This was arrogance on a level that is almost unheard of, even in the ancient world. Did I just say world? I just, that was a Karenism. My friend Karen from back home. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. 
This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And he goes nuts. And he lives outside, and his hair gets long, and his nails get long. And apparently they don't kill him because he's the king. They don't know what to do. They just let him go. I'm like, did they clean up after him? This is creepy. It's weird, man. But you know what happens? At the end of the appointed time, this, this is just so good. This verse is great. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. <laughs> I was crazy. I was nuts. I was, you know what? And I bet he means all the way back when he was on the roof. Not just when he started acting like an animal. Because it's crazy to talk that way. You are drunk, ego. You are not thinking of yourself with sober judgment. You went way beyond acknowledging your own awesomeness, your own abilities. You went beyond acknowledging what you've done. You went way beyond confidence. You thought you were the gift giver. You thought you were the ultimate power. You thought all of that was because of you. You were usurping the role of God. Whoa. That's a bridge or two too far, Nebuchadnezzar. That's way too far, Herod. That is out of bounds. That's beyond sober thinking. That's a drunk ego. That's pride. And God hates that. Only God is God. When we start thinking of ourselves a little too close to that line, it becomes pride. Does that make sense? Philippians 2.3 Pride is a skewed view of ourselves and others. And this is what Paul says we should think about when we think of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Other people are the solution to pride and our insurance against getting a prideful heart. And let me say this. I don't think Paul actually meant to walk in a room and think you're the least valuable person there. I don't think that's what he meant. But just like the parable where he says, you know, don't, don't take the, the best seat at a banquet. Take the last seat. Why are you doing that? So that the guy can come to you and say, move up. You're worth more than that. You're better than that. But have that posture of humility. Paul is saying when you walk into a room, you need to be there for everyone else. You need to value them so highly that you're not thinking about you. You treat them like they're more important. Another translation says esteem them as more valuable. Does that make sense? Other people are the solution to an insurance against pride. So my question then is this. How does God exactly escape pride? And you know, he does it in two kind of interesting ways. And one actually pertains to the Trinity a bit. Check this out from John 17, 4 and 5. I know there's a lot of Bible verses. I'm going all over, but I hope it's coherent and it's smooth. This is Jesus praying in John 17. I glorified you on earth. He's talking to God the Father having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When you read the Bible, particularly the last speech in John, you see this back and forth of glorification and this back and forth of honor. God is a mystery. God is one God who exists in three persons. This is the most confusing, probably the most written about tenet of Orthodox Christianity, and yet... It makes the whole thing work. How can God be love? Well, he practices. He's three people. <laughs> How can God be humble? Well, he practices. He's always esteeming himself as better than himself, even though he's not better than himself. <laughs> It'll blow your mind if you think about it too much. Luckily, God also does that for us. Look at Mark 10, 45. 
Jesus, in a sense, says, you're not better than me. Grab a towel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. None of us were worth more than Jesus. And Jesus came and esteemed us as more valuable than himself. Wow. And I have to tell you, if God is going to get out of pride that way, he doesn't actually have to escape, but that's the wording I chose to use. We're going to escape pride the same way. Okay? Let's read the rest of that verse out of Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Conceit, I'm going to read it up off of here. But rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests. I like the translation that translates this, not looking to your own interests only, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, the same mindset as God himself, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Do you realize what that's saying? He says, I realize that I'm in very nature God, but I'm not going to use that to my advantage. I'm going to use it to yours. I'm going to use it to your advantage. Wow. It's not pride to recognize your own unique awesome. It's not pride to recognize your achievements. It's not pride to be confident. As long as you're coupling it with that. Let's close with this, these thoughts. When you meet someone, and it will happen, and we're tempted to call them prideful right off the bat, but when you meet someone who is living life confidently and recognizes their own awesomeness, huh? Oh, this might raise a few. Now we're making it personal, right? But when you meet this person, you can grow in humility by recognizing their awesomeness also and not calling their confidence pride. When you meet someone who's awesome, you know, one of the most humble things you can do is say, dude, that was awesome. Dude, you're awesome at that. I, was, I did judo with a guy named Josh. Josh was the best guy in our dojo. I mean, he gave our national champion black belt instructor a real run for his money. Judo geese, anybody ever like felt a judo gi? They're like super thick. They ripped their gis. They were so intense and strong. Like, I, I saw them like rip arms off. It's crazy, crazy. One time I asked Josh, Josh, you hate to lose. You talk about it all the time. And you love competition. You talk about it all the time. How can you love competition and hate to lose? Because in my mind, I'm thinking competition entails losing. See that? But he was working on a bike at the time. And he put his wrench down and looked at me. And he said, I always believe I can win. Wow. That's a guy that recognizes his own awesomeness. But you know what? I'll tell you this. He was one of the most humble guys I ever met in my life. Confident. Recognized as awesome. You know what? I recognized as awesome too because he threw me on my butt all the time. I had to recognize it. I was down here and he was up there. But that was humbling for me. You know, and when it's that obvious, somebody's tossing on your butt all the time, it's hard not to recognize it. But in life, we resist recognizing other people's awesome because we're afraid that somehow that might diminish our own. We can grow in humility by recognizing other people's giftings and abilities. And check this out. Don't forget to be humble. Be humble by recognizing your own awesomeness and using it to serve others. Just like God. Just like God. Thank you, guys. I'm going to give it to Shamrock to close.